So we'll, okay, let me just mute everybody. Let me just record as well, just in case. Okay, this is the school Shir. And it's also dedicated to all our soldiers. Um, we are in chapter 15 of Yechezkel. Um, we're in verse 7, at the end of verse 7. We started to discuss this last week. Um, the general um, attitude of this chapter, or the general approach of this chapter, is to compare the Jewish people to a vine, uh, which we'll discuss in a bit more detail later on. But in verse 7, um, God describes the Jewish people. Um, I'll just read you the verse. This is chapter 15, verse 7. God said, I'll set my face against them, which is not good. May from the fire they have emerged, meaning the Jewish people, uh, and the fire will devour them. Then uh, they'll know I am God. When I direct my face against them. And uh, it's one particular statement in the uh, verse that we concentrated on last week. And there's just one more thing really to say about it. Um, and the statement is, God describes the Jewish people, uh, from the fire they emerged, and now the fire will devour them. So we had a discussion about this last week. We had various opinions on what it meant. Uh, we quoted a Gomorrah. And now there's another Gomorrah, which is brought by the Chidot, Rav Chaim David Azulai. Um, and he quotes two, uh, three Gomorrahs, actually, but... Uh, the two Gemara's that we're concerned with are in Kiddushin. And uh, he explains it like this. So he says, From the fire they have emerged or exited, and from the fire the fire will devour them. And he quotes the Gemara from Kiddushin, um, and he says, This is the way the Gemara understands it. Uh, perhaps, we can understand what God is saying here in this verse, in verse 7, uh, from the, this Gemara in Kedushin. And the Gemara says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yisrael. God said to the Jewish people, Bonai, my children, Barosi Yetzirah, I created the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, Uberosi uh, Lo Torah Tablet, famous Gemara, and I created the Torah as its antidote. And if you keep the Torah, engage in Torah study, you will not be given over into the hands of your own Yetzirah, into the own of, hands of your own in, evil inclination. But if you don't, don't engage in Torah study, you'll be at the mercy of the power of the evil inclination. Says the Chidot, but often she'en makom la'adam lo'mashu onus. Uh, on the basis that anyone who is constantly pressured, as we all are, pressured, tortured um, by his Yetzirah, by his evil inclination, he has the necessary medication at his fingertips to overcome the power of his evil inclination. Uh, let him learn Torah. And the Torah will shield, shield him and save him from the powerful negative forces of his own evil inclination. And for this reason, the rabbi supported the idea of the study of the Torah, even for the wrong reasons. Even if you um, treat it as just another intellectual pursuit, like any other uh, academic pursuit. So the rabbis in, in, encouraged this. You think that the rabbis wouldn't encourage it, but the rabbis encouraged it. And the reason is, because the Gemara says in the name of Rab, a person can always engage in Torah study and performance of mitzvahs, even if he does not do so for the right reasons, because it's the nature of engaging in Torah, learning Torah, engaging in Torah and doing mitzvahs, even if you do them from the wrong, for the wrong reasons, 
it will ultimately lead you to engage in them for the right reason, which is the service of God. And because the Yetzirah knows the score, that learning the Torah itself is the antidote to his own nefarious power, he does everything in his power to stop a person from learning uh, Torah, from engaging in Torah study. He said that for that reason, that's why the rabbis encourage Jews to study Torah, even if they're doing so for the wrong reasons or with the, even with the wrong intentions. Even if you're doing it for the wrong intentions, I mean, the wrong reasons is you're treating it as an academic pursuit. The wrong intention can even be to the extent that you want to disprove what it's saying. Even then you are encouraged to learn it. Because the Yetzirah would not bother to pressure such a person. Not to learn Torah. Believing Believing that uh, this person studying Torah for the wrong reasons and for the wrong intentions. And therefore it would never lead to anything more than an academic understanding. And it certainly wouldn't lead to the person wanting to keep the Torah or keep the mitzvahs or do things for the right reasons. This is because the Yetzirah doesn't appreciate that the concept that engaging in Torah and mitzvahs for the wrong reasons will ultimately lead a person to engage in them for the right reasons, which is a service of God which if unchallenged will alter, ultimately result in the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, losing, losing his control over that particular person. That's what the Gemara says. And uh, he says, says the, um, says the uh, Chidah, but know that the Yetzirah nimshol la'esh. And uh, you should know that uh, in Chazal, uh, in the Gemaras, the Yetzirah is compared to a fire. Uh, and uh, I won't read the whole Gemara, I'll just give you the highlights. Uh, the Gemara says, this is the Gemara in Kiddushin, uh, later on, on the Pei Aleph, page 81, right at the end of the Gemara in Kiddushin, that uh, the Gemara says that captive Jewish women who'd been rescued from slavery <clears throat> and prostitution and forced marriages um, with non-Jews were brought to Naradoya in Babylonia, were brought to the yeshiva there in Naradoya, and were um, accommodated at the house of Rabbi Amram the Chosid. Rabbi Amram the Chosid, who wasn't suspected of doing anything inappropriate, and he had a place there where all these Jewish women who were suffering post-traumatic stress disorder because they'd just been saved from slavery, from prostitution, forced marriages, forced conversions, etc. And they brought them to the house, brought these women to the house of Rabbi Amram the Chosid. Um, and he had a, a, a big area uh, on on the top floor of his house um, where he housed these women. And they removed the ladder from uh, this, uh, this loft area to prevent men from climbing up uh, into this attic uh, where they used to sleep. And says the Gomorrah, when one of these women passed by the entrance to the upper chamber... It was though a light shone in the aperture due to her great beauty. Um, and Rabbi Amram the Chosid, <clears throat> he saw her, and he had a sudden overwhelming desire for this woman. So uh, this Rabbi Amram, who was the the guy that was owned the house, and he was the, the guy they entrusted to with the safety of the women, he grabbed a ladder, uh, that even 10 men, the Gomorrah says, 10, it was so heavy that even 10 men combined would find it difficult to lift. He lifted it on his own and began climbing towards the woman. When he was halfway up the ladder, he strengthened his legs against the sides of the ladder to stop himself from climbing any further. And he raised his voice and cried out, there's a fire in the house of Amram. Uh, on hearing this, the rabbis who were sitting downstairs came and found him uh, halfway up the ladder. And they said to him, uh, Amra, you have embarrassed all of us, all the rabbis of Naradoi, since everyone will know what you intended to do. And Rabbi Amram said to them, it's better that you be ashamed. In Amram's house, 
in this world and not be ashamed of him in the world to come. Um, again, I'll repeat that very interesting quote. It's better that you be ashamed, you be ashamed in Amram's house about him in this world and not be ashamed of him in the world to come. And in front of the rabbis, he took an oath and begged that his Yetzirah would emerge from him. And as he did so, an apparition of a pillar of fire emerged out of him, uh, which was his Yetzirah. And he said to his Yetzirah, even though you are fire and I am only flesh, I am superior to you. Uh, as I was able to overcome you. And the Gemara says, Vazesha Omar. And that's what it means. Meho Eish, from the fire, Shehoya HaTorah, which is uh, uh, the Torah. Eish Dos Yotzo. Um, that uh, there are two fires, says the Gemara, uh, in this world. Uh, there's the fire of Torah, which Moshe describes in Devorim, he says, this is right at the end of Devorim, right at the end of the Torah. Vayom HaShem Misinai Bot. He's talking about the uh, when the Torah was given. That God came from Sinai. Vazorach uh, Meisir Lamo. And shone forth from Seir. Hofia Mehar Poron. He appeared from the mountain of Poron. Vaosam Meravos Kodesh. And came with some of the holy angels. Mimi No. From his right hand. Eish Dos Lomo was a fiery Torah designed for them. And says says uh, the Chidot, that fire of the Torah, if you study it, even for the wrong reasons, allows you to yotso'u, allows you to emerge, emerge and become immune to the other great fire in this world, which is the Yetzirah, which, if left unchecked, would consume you. And he says, that's what this posuk means. That's the secret. He says, it's a secret. So that's the secret message of it says Lagamre. Apila Shalolishma Ba Eshua Yetzaraba Sitra Akram Tochlain Shi Yilkuduba Averus Hamuros Vye Onshu Onshimorim. He says the fire of the Torah is your protection, your protection against doing terrible sins and um uh being punished with terrible punishments. And he said these are the two fires that are burned in the world. And that's what Yechezkel is saying here, that may Eish, may Ho Eish Yotzo'u, that the Eish, the fire, the fire of the Torah is Yotzo'u. It's the thing that helps you to escape in this world. What does it help you to escape from? It helps you to escape, Boho Eish Tochleim, from the fire of the Yetzirah that wants to consume you. So that is, um, that is the message. And he continues, listen to what he says now. You know, unbelievable. That's why the, the rabbis. Uh, no, I'm not going to go go further than that. Okay, so that's verse seven, and uh, that takes us on to the final verse of the chapter, um, verse eight. Benosati um, oret shemama. I will make God says that uh, you didn't avoid. The problems of the fire, you didn't avoid, avoid the problems of the Yetzirah, and you carried on as normal. I'll make the land desolate. Yan Because you, the Jewish people, or they, the Jewish people, have rebelled grievously against me. <laughs> so says God. And uh, unfortunately for the Jews at the end of the First Temple period, they couldn't. They wouldn't take the necessary st- steps to overcome their Yetzirah. And as a result, their fate was sealed, as uh, the Malbim says here. They got what they deserved. Their land was left desolate. They were exiled. That was what they deserved. The land became desolate because they couldn't control the Yetzirah for Paganism, sexual impropriety, corruption, violence, you name it, they were doing it. So they've suffered the fate designated for those that rebel against the Torah. So that's the end of, um, that's the end of chapter 15. But there's a, uh, an epilogue to this chapter, a very important one. Um, the, the, the chapter itself, uh, began 
uh, comparing the Jewish people uh, to wine and or comparing the Jewish people to a grapevine. Now, this chapter and the next chapter as well, uh, both deal in allegory. The next chapter, chapter 16, is a very long allegory, very long martial uh, parable. This one's a bit shorter, uh, in which the Jews are compared to a vine or compared to wine. Um, and um, as we discussed uh, in the early part of last week's year, uh, the grapevine has got three parts to it. The branches, which we discussed last week, have got no value other than producing uh, vine and grapes, uh, fruit and grapes. The grapes themselves have got value as fruit, uh, just like any other fruit um, or any other nation. That's the parable uh, that we're compared to all the other trees. We're, the Jewish nation is like any other tree. The only difference is We've got a greater potential. We're compared to the vine, um, so that uh, the, the the vine uh, is made up of the branches, again, which have got no value other than producing the fruit, the grapes. The grapes themselves have got value as fruit, just like any other fruit in any other nation. They can produce fine fruit, fine, fine people. But the added value of the grapevine is that as it has the potential to produce something of value that no other fruit, no other nation can produce, and that is the wine, the creme de la creme. We, the Jews, and I'm, I'm quoting Divrei Chazal here, and also the uh, Baalei Musa, uh, uh, who discussed this chapter in great detail. Um, we, the Jews, are here to be the wine of the world. Our value uh, has the potential to transcend the value of the rest of the world. We have the potential to be the supreme commodity in the world, just like wine is the supreme commodity among fruit juices. Um, we are the supreme commodity among the nations. The greatest we have got the greatest uh, potential, but we achieve our potential of being this ultimate commodity by demonstrating and fulfilling our responsibility. Uh, to be the supreme spiritual and ethical and moral example to the rest of the world. But, and this is the big but, if we ag abrogate that responsibility, we'll become just like any other fruit, any other nation. Um, and as we know, grapes are among the weakest of all the fruits. They're easily crushed, and once they're crushed, they're worthless. And even worse than that, if we behave in a way that doesn't even put us on the same moral or spiritual level as other nations, we revert to being mere flimsy vine branches that, unlike the wood of trees, are valueless uh, and are easily cast aside. Um, and can, their only use, really, is to be used as fuel in a fire. That's in comparison to other trees, other nations, whose wood and timber has got real value, even if their fruit is rotten because their wood can be used for many mundane, everyday purposes, for fuel, for carpentry, for art, for mu musical instruments, to uh, manufacture ships, paper, constructions, etc., construction, etc. Whereas the, the branches of a vine have got absolutely no use at all. They're far too flimsy to be used in any constructive activity. So on the one hand, would the Jewish people are like elastic, on the one hand, they've got the potential to become the wine of the world, which is the ultimate commodity. On the other hand, they've got the potential to be uh, the most useless and valueless commodity in the world, just like the vine branches are in comparison to the wood of regular trees. And uh, as is pointed out by many of the Balei uh, Musa uh, here, Jews need to be reminded of this analogy, this allegory, of Jews being the wine of, humali of humanity uh, over and over again, constantly, so that we can fulfill our destiny, again, of being the moral light, the spiritual example to the rest of the world. And that's why in Judaism, in Halacha, and also in Minhag, wine was always used, always used by Chazal, always used by the rabbis as a central theme in everything that we do. You've heard the expression "aim simcha ela babasa v'yain." There's <clears throat> there's no such thing as simcha unless you're eating meat and wine. So, well, the restaurant there was a restaurant in Herzliya called Meat and Wine. 
So I'll tell you an interesting story. When I first got married, so uh, this statement from Chazal, aim simcha ele babosa v'yayin. There's no, you can't have simcha unless you have bossa, you have meat and, meat and wine. I don't know what the vegetarians or the vegans do, but I suppose they do what they want. But um, so that is a general opinion uh, of Chazal, and it relates directly to the Simcha of Yontif. If you're going to have Yontif, so you have a Yontif meal. So you have meat and wine in the Yontif meal. We have on Shabbos as well. That's the traditional thing that we do. So when I first got married, so um, my wife on, on Shavuos, so she told me she told me she's going to make milchit. So I said, no, I ain't simcha ele babosa v'yayin. You can't have yomtev you know, without meat and wine. So she says, well, I'm making milchit. <laughs> so I said, well, let's ask the dying, my rabbi, let's ask him uh, his his opinion. So we rang up my my rob, my rabbi, and uh, my wife gets on the phone to him and she says, you know, Rabbi, she says, my husband, your Talmud, I've told him we're having milkshakes for Shavuos, for Yom Tov, and he, he, he said he won't have it. He, he's demanding that I make meat and, meat and wine for Yom Tov. So his words to her was, put the idiot on the phone. Put, the, put your husband, the idiot, on the phone. So I go on the phone, and he says to me, he says to me, he says to me, I've been married for uh, however long he's been married. He says, and every Shavuos, my wife makes milkshakes for me, and I thank her very much for spending the time and thinking of me and making me such a lovely meal. He says, I suggest you do the same if you want your marriage to last. Anyway, so I learned a valuable lesson there. But generally speaking, we have this idea of ain't simcha ele babos of And as we're going to see, I'll just give you a few examples. In Judaism, the rabbis have made sure that this analogy, this allegory of the Jewish people being the wine is always present wherever we are. Um, if you look at our daily lives, uh, wine is an intrinsic part of our daily, weekly and yearly practices as Ju- of Jews. Whenever we are Mekaddish, whenever we, we sanctify a holy day, Shabbos or Yom Tov, or e- even when we revert from a holy day to a mundane day, uh, when Shabbos goes out or when Yom Tov goes out, we use wine to memorialize the moment. Every Shabbos and Yom Tov, the day begins with Kiddush over wine. When Shabbos ends, we make Abdullah over wine. When we have a bris and a pigeon a ben, we memorialize it with a bracha over wine. When we have a chuppah, the marriage is sanctified with various brachas over wine. On Pesach, which signifies the ideas of the idea of God's redemption of the Jewish people, we celebrate it with four cups of wine. At the time of the base of Migdosh, there was Nisach Hayayin every day. They poured wine on the Mizbeach uh, in the base of Migdosh as part of the uh, temple service, the Avoda, every day. On Purim, we're supposed to drink wine. Adelo Yoda, the Gemara says. Until you don't know the difference between um, Boruch Mordechai, blessed is Mordechai, and Oror Haman, and Horror Haman should be cursed. And we do that in celebration of being delivered from the clutches of Haman and Achashverosh. Um, the, the Rambam <coughs> writes in Hilchas Megillah, <coughs> What is the nature of our obligation for a Purim Su'uda on Purim? A person should eat meat and pre- prepare as attractive a, a, as a, a feast as his uh, means permits. The show sayin, and he should drink wine and shayishtake biyerdeim bishichruso, and should drink wine until he becomes intoxicated and falls asleep in a stupor. So the Rambam gets a general picture. Um, when we bench, <clears throat> when we bench with a mazuman, the Shulchan Aruch says we do it with a cup of wine. Now we only do it when there's ten, but uh, if you look at the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, it's very clear that even if you've got an ordinary mazuman of three, you should the person who benches the mazuman should hold a cup of wine. So that essentially every time we have a moment of simcha in our lives, 
it's almost it's well it's always accompanied by lachaim, and uh, you know you go to um, you go to a uh, engagement party whatever it is there's wine there's it's a simcha and uh, there's wine you you uh, it should be accompanied by wine. Um, uh, conversely, in times when we remember our troubled history, uh, the nine days, Tisha B'Av, the first, first thing that goes out of the win- window are the very same things, meat and wine. So we, we get rid when it's uh, a moment of reflection uh, to show how we've misbehaved in the past and we've been punished for it. We throw out the wine. We get rid of the wine because the wine is to remind us of our potential and the nine days reminds us how we didn't live up to our potential. And David Amelech uh, in Tehillim describes his bracha for a woman, for a wife. He says that a, a, a man should pray that Ishtech Kegef Imperia, that uh, you need, should have a wife that should be as beautiful as the fruit of the vine, like wine, fine wine. So everything, almost everything we do, in our lives, the rabbis made sure that there was an element attached to the moments of joy, the moments of simcha, the moments of Yom Tov, the moments of Shabbos, whatever it is, uh, brismila, pigeon up, whatever it is, this wine has to be present to remind us of our responsibilities and remind us of our potential, that we are, we have the potential to be the wine of the world. If you look in the Torah, for example, very interesting. In, in, at the end of break, or well, not the end of Brachus, um at a point that some will argue is the most important moment in the history of the Jewish nation, which is when Yitzchok gave Yaakov his bracha, um, that's in Brachus in chapter 27, in verse 25, um, and uh, Yaakov, disguised as Aesop, went to his father to get a bracha, and what did his father Yitzchok say to him? So I'll remind you, it says in Bereshis, this is again, chapter 27, verse 25, he says, before I give you the broche, he said, bring me some meat, bring me some venison, um, in order that my soul will bless you in the right way. And Yaakov served him, brought him. His mother made the food. The, he didn't make the food. His wife, uh, uh, Rivka, made the food. Vayochal and Yitzchakek. Vayovelo yain vayesht. And he brought him wine. Yaakov brought him wine and he drank. Again, the the, the it, it shouldn't be lost on us that he brought him wine. Wine is. Um, an expression of what we are and what what is expected of us. Uh, similarly, at the end of the story of Yosef and his brothers, um, uh, we join the story where the brothers don't know yet that the the viceroy of Egypt, in, in front of whom they're standing, is their long lost brother. Um, and uh, right at the end of Bereshis in chapter forty three, they're all sitting down and eating a meal. Um, Yosef. Uh, he knows it's them, but they don't know it's him. And the Posik says there, by Yisol Masaos Meyes Pono, um, Yosef had uh, portions of fo- food uh, brought to each of them, Alehem to each of them. By Terev Masaes Binyomin Masas Kulon, Chomeshiodos, and Binyomin's portion was bigger than the rest of them. By Yishtu, by Yishguru Ima. And they drank wine and became intoxicated with it, with him. They all became a little bit shaker. And Rashi says there, Vayishtu Vayishkiru Imal. Um, he says, what, what, why does the Torah make a big deal out of the fact that they were having a meal? Why does the Torah have to make it uh, make play on the fact that they uh, got they drank and they uh, became intoxicated together? So Rashi says. Since the day they sold him, which was 22 years earlier, neither the brothers nor Yosef had drank wine from morning. They mourned that day. That day was the day that everything broke down, that the relationship between uh, brothers broke down, the relationship between sons and fathers broke down. 
and uh, the relationship of the Jewish people broke down and it hadn't been repaired up until that moment. So the Torah wants to tell you, says Rashi, that was the first time they drank wine in 22 years, that uh, the status quo was about to be preserved, the status quo was about to be um, uh, brought back. So what we see, um, apart from our daily lives, which we discussed in detail, at all pivotal points in both our daily lives and when we commemorate events for our, from our history, there's a demand from the rabbis that the drinking of wine be the catalyst for the memorialization of those days. And again, that is not lost, shouldn't be lost on us. Uh, as Ramchal says and various others say, because it's supposed to serve as a, of a reminder of who we are and what our job is, what our potential is, what our job is in this world. Uh, to live up to our responsibilities and, of course, to display to the world what the wine is in 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 the material world. That uh, just like the wine is the <clears throat> um, peak of um, a product of a tree, uh, the Jewish people are supposed to be the peak of human responsibility to show an example of supreme moral, ethical, and spiritual values to the rest of the world. Um, just to finish off on this issue, or just a couple of things to say uh, more on this issue, um, brochus, when you meet, well, it's very interesting, uh, when you meet a non-Jewish scholar, um, don't know if anybody's had the opportunity to say this, brocha, I have, when you meet a non-Jewish scholar, uh, who has excelled in a field uh, of his particular expertise, medicine, science, mathematics, doctor, great doctor, a great writer. There's a particular brocha that you say, um, and uh, the Shulchan Aruch itemizes, not itemizes, but tells you what brocha you have to say when you meet, uh, you know, you meet uh, uh, a professor of uh, a Nobel Prize, a non-Jewish Nobel Prize winner, you say, the Shulchan Aruch tells you, and when you meet a Talmud Chacham, not Talmud Chacham, but a, a, a great intellect, a non-Jewish intellect, um, who's an expert in a particular field of human endeavor, Oma, you say this bracha, Baruch Hashem Lekeinu Melech HaOlam, Shenosan Mechachmosa Lebosavadah, who gave some of his wisdom to the to flesh and blood. And the Piskei Tshuva writes in his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch there, um, the Minag is not to make this bracha nowadays, since some say that a person shouldn't make a bracha on non-Jews that don't keep the Sheva Mitzvah's B'nai Nach. But that's just uh, one opinion. The, there are plenty of... Um, uh, when I first met Professor Lennox, who was one of my mathematic, mathematical teachers, and he's... Uh, my opinion, one of the greatest mathematicians of the last hundred years. So you make, I made that bracha because, and he, he's, he is a, uh, a Ben Noah. Um, and, uh, you know, is a superstar in mathematics. Um, that is a non-Jewish scholar. Uh, if you meet a, a Jewish scholar, if you meet Einstein, for example, we'll come to him in a minute. If you meet Einstein, for example, you don't make that bracha. You only make that bracha in a non-Jew a non-Jewish scholar. When you meet a great Jewish Talmud Chacham, uh, you meet, you know, you meet, uh, if you've ever met, if you've ever met Rav Moshe Feinstein, Zechot Salih Rocha, or Rav Kamenetsky, Zechot Salih Rocha, Rav Avadjo, whatever, um, um, one of the great Talmud Chachamid of the last generation, uh, even today, I don't know who, who it would be today, um, but uh, if you if you meet a great Jewish Talmud Chacham, there's a different bracha to say. Again, the Shulchan Aruch tells you, Yisrael." If you meet one of the the Gedoli Yisrael, one of the great Talmud Chacham of Israel, you make a bracha. Who gave who who took of his own God, who took of his own wisdom to those who fear him. Um, and this brocha is made very rarely because it should only be made for really superstar. 
uh, and he's not only got to be a superstar in terms of his knowledge, he's also got to be a, a, an acknowledged God-fearing person and also a man of Midas. Um, and opinions on this, on when to make this brocha vary. The Orach HaShulchan writes, you don't make this brocha nowadays since we're not sure if the Talmidi Chachamim of our generation are as great as the Talmidi Chachamim that the Gomorrah refers to when this brocha was first instituted. The Ben Ishchai in Parashas Eikev and the Sitz Eliezer say you make the, nowadays you make the brocha without God's name. You don't say Baruch to Hashem, you just say Baruch, Baruch Shecholak Mechachmos Blessed is he who uh, gave from his own wisdom to those who fear him. But um, most opinions follow Rabbi Vajja, Rabbi Vajja Yosef Zechetzal Livrocha, who says in, in, in his Sefer Yechov Adas um, that the Talmidi Chachomim of each generation are considered like the greats of the previous generation. However, having said all that, the Piskei Tshuva lists many Gedolim who made this brocha on other great Rabbonim. He quotes uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Vajja, the Chazonish, the Minchas Aluza, was a Munkacharov, um, that one should make this brocha still till today. Um, Reb Shmuel Bosnat, I don't know if he's still alive, but the Sheva Talevi, he writes that he recalls when the Rogachava Gorn, the great Rogachava Gorn, Rabbi Yosef Rosin, visited Vienna, many came to him just to say the brocha, just to say that brocha, brocha to Hashem, lekenim al-cholom, shecholak michachmosa l'reo who uh, separated, God separated from his own wisdom and gave it to to those that feared him. <clears throat> the Chazon Ish felt that the brocha should be recited on Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, the father of Chaim Kanievsky, uh, and he also said that he said that brocha over the Chobetz Chaim, or a med Simcha of Davinsk, who was called the Meshachachmo, the Samech. So, just going back, the reason why I brought this up, because I want to go back to the brocha you say when you meet a non-Jewish scholar. When you meet a non-Jewish scholar who has excelled in his own field of expertise, a great scientist, mathematician, a great doctor, a great writer, whatever it is, you make this brocha that Shulchan Aruch says, Brocha to Hashem lekenim al-cholom, shenoson who gave wisdom to, to, to gave of his wisdom to flesh and blood. Now, what is quirky about this bracha, which I just mentioned earlier, it's that it's only said when you meet a non-Jewish scholar. So that uh, if you ever had the opportunity, uh, some I don't know if some of you are old enough to have met Einstein, um, you would not be making this bracha. You that's not a bracha you would say to someone like Einstein, even though he was one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century. If it had been non-Jewish, you'd have made that bracha. If it was Jewish, you don't make that bracha. And the questions raised, why would you not make this bracha, Shenosan Michochmosa Labosabadam, blessing God for giving wisdom from his wisdom to flesh and blood, when meeting someone Jewish like Einstein? After all, he's no less accomplished than any other non Jewish genius or expert. And the answer is this what we've been talking about before. Because from a Jewish perspective, either by circumstances or by choice, we're not allowed to be judgmental on that issue. Einstein missed his calling. I'll say that again. This is pointed out by my own Rebbe and by Rabbi Moshe. Because from the Jewish perspective, we don't make this bracha on a Jewish scholar who is uh, an expert in the natural world, in the mathematical world, in the scientific world. Because from the perspective of the Jew, from the perspective of Judaism, uh, and again, either by circumstances or by choice, Ours is not to be judgmental on that issue. Einstein missed his calling because the purpose of a Jew, uh, see this in Rav Moshe, the purpose of a Jew is not to be an intellectual giant. Uh, He's not meant to be a regular fruit, a regular beautiful fruit. That's how you describe it, right? The cream, the the beautiful, the 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 cream of the crop, the beautiful fruit on the tree. We're not supposed to be a beautiful fruit on the tree. That's not our job. That's the job of the Goyim. The purpose of the Jew is to display supreme moral, ethical, and spiritual values to the rest of the world. Our job is to become like wine, 
Uh, and this can only be achieved by studying and putting into practice the words of the Torah and keeping the mitzvahs of the Torah and using all our academic and intellectual gifts in the service of God. A Jew can reach his, I'm, I'm reading from Rav Moshe here, a Jew can reach his potential and be the greatest mathematician of his age, but that achievement is not an end in and of itself. The pur- pur- purpose of achieving greatness is to use it in the service of God. Nothing more, nothing less. There is no intrinsic value in a Jew being a leading intellect in any academic field, whether that field is mathematics, the sciences, medicine, music, or literature. That is why we make no special bracha when encountering such a Jew, because that Jew, whatever his achievements from the Jewish perspective, is producing no wine. So, that um, that is uh, the end of chapter. <laughs> that is the end. Of, it's an interesting end to chapter fifteen. That's what we are. We're wine, or we. That's what we got the potential to be. We're not regular fruits. We're not the reg- We're not a beautiful apple. We're not a beautiful pear. We're not a beautiful anything. We're supposed to be go one stage further. We're supposed to be the wine, and the wine is symbolic of. Uh, supreme ethical, moral, and spiritual values. And the only way to achieve that is to study Torah and to keep the mitzvahs and set the example to the rest of the world. So that is the essence of this chapter, the Jewish people compared to the vine. Now we move on to chapter 16. Chapter 16. I've been waiting for chapter 16 for a while. Chapter 16 is, uh, well, we had chapter 15, it had eight verses in it. Chapter 16 has got 63 verses in it and is another allegory um, and uh, about the Jewish people, what we are and what's expected of us. And um, uh, and it's what we're going to see. It's, it's essentially split into nine sections. Um, and the general theme of the chapter is a parable. And, and just to put the, the parable, uh, the allegory into perspective, it's, it's a beautiful allegory. It's a beautiful parable. Um, again, describing what the Jewish people are, where we've come from, what we're supposed to be, um, and where we're supposed to be going in life and what we're supposed to be demonstrating to the rest of the world. But in order to do that, what the, what the, uh, what chapter what God does here in chapter 63 is to describe our birth, the birth of the Jewish people. And um, uh, this this parable, this allegory, I'm going to read to you uh, in English, uh, the Abarbanel's introduction to this chapter, uh, which is, again, beautifully written uh, by the Abarbanel. Um, Beautiful poetic introduction to chapter 63, so chapter 63, chapter 16, which again has got 63 verses. So you can imagine we'll be, we'll be looking at this chapter uh, for a little bit of time. Uh, I'll just read to you the, um, his introduction. Again, a beautiful poetic introduction to the chapter. I may have ruined it by translating it directly into English. In Hebrew, it's beautifully poetic. I'm not known for my poetry. Um, uh, but uh, I think the, uh, my translation to English is pretty accurate. Uh, and so here it is. This is what he says about chapter. There are two introductions to chapter uh, 16. We'll, we won't get through both of them today. We'll get through one of them today, probably. Um, and we'll deal with the second introduction from the Ramchal, uh, Ramosh Khan Lutzato, uh, next week. Um, who's got a lot, also got a lot to say about this chapter. Um so here's the Ababinel. He says the overall, these are his words, the overall intention in this prophecy uh, in chapter 16 is that God commanded the prophet to inform the city of Yerushalayim of both her abominable behavior and the repulsive, disloyal, unfaithful behavior of the Jewish people throughout the preceding centuries. The chapter describes the story of the birth of the Jewish people and their decline into treachery against God. And we'll, all this will be expressed in a marshal, in a parable. Uh, and the parable is a story. 
about a girl who was born and uh, deserted, abandoned in a field, um, covered in her mother's blood of labor. Um, in other words, she was deserted. She was abandoned, like moments after her mother gave birth to her, still co covered in her mother's birth blood, labor blood, uh, as she emerged from her mother's full belly. I'm just reading to you the words of the Ababa now. This baby girl was left lying in a field, helpless, with no one to take care of her and protect her. And it happened that a respectable and honorable man passed by the field and find, found the baby girl lying there alone and took pity on her, picked her up, cleaned her body, took her home and raised her as his own. She grew up under his care until she became a woman. When she reached the age of adulthood, adulthood the respectful and honorable man asked her for her hand in marriage, and she agreed. And he spread his loving wings over her and covered her nakedness and adorned her with jewelry and clothes and gold and silver and placed a golden crown on her head. And he gave her her own property and he gave her a kingdom to rule. And her name and fame spread out right across the world. But then she became obsessed with her own, with her own success and flaunted her beauty, and played the part of a harlot, constantly cheating on her husband, and behaving like a common prostitute. More than that, the children that she had born to her husband, she gave over into a life of prostitution as well, betraying the man that had saved her life almost before it had begun. There is no doubt, says Ibarbanel, that in Jewish law that a woman like this deserves all four capital punishments, that are based in, uh, can inflict, and certainly she deserves to die. This story is a parable to the history of the Jewish people, a people that God found totally naked, enslaved in their exile in Egypt after the death of Yosef and all his brothers. And God then picked up the naked body of this people and redeemed this, these people from their miserable existence with the help of multiple miracles in order to give them his greatest gift, the marriage canopy, the chuppah at Mount Sinai. And he wedded them with silver and gold, crowns of Torah and mitzvahs. He then led them to a chosen, divinely blessed land where they could settle and be protected and live securely. But after a very short period of time, like the young girl in the story, they bitterly dis dis disappointed their husband their God, they committed adultery by pursuing the idols of the pagans that lived in neighboring lands. And because of this, her husband allowed her enemies to besiege her and burned her with fire because the wickedness of the house of Israel became even greater than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. So consequently, Jerusalem's judgment, Jerusalem's verdict, Jerusalem's sentence, was in line with the sentence of Stom and Amorah, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the parable displays the imagery that Yerushalayim's uh, sentence would be carried out by an eagle that arose and flew out of Lebanon in the north, which alludes to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who came into Yerushalayim from the north. Remember, right at the start of the book, um, uh, the very first, very first, uh, uh, prophecy in this book of Yechezkel in chapter 1 was Yechezkel sees Sa'ora uh, bombing at Safa. He sees a, a storm coming from the north, which was the Babylonian army. The, the, the allegory finishes, uh, the chapter doesn't finish, but the particular allegory finishes, the parable finishes is on how Nebuchadnezzar is going to conquer and gain control of Yushalayim, but the chapter reaches its penultimate section with a description and explanation of all the punishments that will befall the Jews as a result of their unfaithfulness to God. So that's the first part of the parable. The parable is about the Jewish people. The story is about this young lady, this young girl, who's a young baby, a, a, a baby girl found in a, found in a, um, in a, uh, abandoned in a field. Now, up to this point, the way I've described it, it all sounds very dark. Uh, but right at the end of the chapter, 
um, what we're going to see is we're going to have a message of comfort and consolation, uh, a promise that God uh, will in the future reestablish um, his relationship with the young woman, with the Jewish people, as it was at the very beginning of the marriage on Mount Sinai. Um, and that message of comfort, uh, which is a message of comfort and reconciliation and new beginnings, um, that comes right at the end of the chapter. The chapter itself, although it appears to be very, very dark, um, despite that, the allegory and the way it's described in the text, which is beautiful Hebrew, just beautiful Hebrew, uh, and beautifully written, uh, as you might expect from Yechezkel, uh, the allegory itself is so beautiful that, uh, you know, even though it's uh, a dark representation of Jewish history, right, right from the start, right from, it's a, it's a story of, of the history of the Jewish people. It's a recap of the history of the Jewish people. The allegory is a, a, a recap of the history of the Jewish people from the time that they were enslaved in Egypt, right through to the point where God feels the need to destroy Yerushalayim. And it's expressed in poetic terms, allegorical terms. It's just beautiful Hebrew. And uh, I think that diminishes in, in some way, thank God, the darkness of the of the message. Um, but the thing we have to remember, and, and this is something I'll discuss with you next week, uh, the bottom line is the end of the chapter, which we won't get to for some time, um, is is the comfort part, the fact that uh, unlike the story of the young lady, the allegory of the young lady that um, uh, abandons her husband and um, is um, eventually uh, destroyed by her husband uh, after he'd done everything for her, in in, in the allegory of the Jewish people, uh, Zechariah of Zechariah is going to describe uh, a message of comfort that God will never give up on the Jewish people. There'll be a new beginning at the end of days, uh, maybe not even at the end of days, but there'll be a new beginning. And um, this is uh, encapsulated, uh, which I'll deal with next week. I'll finish a little bit early today because I don't want to start this because uh, it's uh, a beautiful essay. It's an essay from the Ramchal on this chapter. It's an essay on God's love for the Jewish people. Uh, how to understand God's love for the Jewish people. Uh, and we'll deal with that next week. But uh, that will come at the end of the chapter. But I wanted to, to um, deal with it first before we go into the dark, um, the darkness of, um, of of the allegory. And again, it's dark, but uh, on the other hand, it's such beautiful poetry, such beautiful language that... Um, it's easy to read and uh, it doesn't, it appears less, less dark than it would normally be. So that is all to come next week. Uh, chapter 16. We'll start with uh, uh, a message of comfort before we start the allegory uh, from the Ramchal. And, uh, and then we'll get into this chapter. As I say, the chapter is 63 um, uh, verses long. So it's going to take us a little while to get through it. But uh, every verse has has got something in it that is just beautiful, just uh, absolutely uh, wonderful to read the Hebrew and the messages. So the, there are there are things about there are things that come out in in the language here that we would never have thought of in relation to uh, the history of the Jews from the from the time of the Exodus or the time of the enslavement in in Egypt. Uh, we'll get a, a tremendous amount of uh, education on uh, what happened in the desert and uh, things that we wouldn't normally know about. So that that will be uh, next week. It's in the first 14 chapters of this verse, uh, for, first 14 chapters of this chapter, 14 verses of this chapter deal with this parable, this dark parable, and we'll deal with that then. So we've got a couple of minutes. As, hold on, someone's asked a question here. Um as opposed to the vine, isn't the oak tree often referred to as a terebinth, acknowledged as representing the wisdom recognized in Judaism? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Sorry, don't know. If anybody's got any, so we were a, a couple of minutes early, so, uh, well, or two minutes Harry, early, so if anybody's got I, a question, now's the time. Can I ask you something about the, the, um, the vine and the grape and the wine. Um, 
when you have too much, you talked about intoxication. Yeah. You could give the example of Noah. You give the example of um, um, our own sons giving the strange fire. And it's, and it's, it's mentioned that the drunkenness, I don't know if it's metaphorically or literally, it, the wine takes away your, your, it's a social lubricant. It takes away your inhibitions. And as Jews, don't we need our strongest inhibitions in order to um, keep the Yes, mitzvah? 100%. There, there are negative connotations to wine as well. And it, it does create, wine does create a lack of um, um, ability to think properly uh, in, when it's taken in, in, in excess. Um, and um, yeah, you're right. It is used as an analogy throughout the Torah and throughout the Tanakh. Um, as an expression of people um, becoming intoxicated and not being responsible, not 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 being responsible for their actions, but uh, acting in an in- irrational way as well. But obviously, you, you have to take that into consideration. But this is an allegory. It's an allegory to the wine. Obviously, wine. You have, for example, I'm a, I don't want to go into the, the Zohar deals with this, uh, and I was going to mention it, but I didn't. You have water, right? Mayim, mem yud mem. So Mayim goes, if you look at the word Mayim, it's uh, the opposite. It reads both ways. It reads the same both ways. Water goes into you. It comes out the same way. It goes in as water and it comes. Dr. Lowenthal might disagree with me, but it goes in as water and it seems to come out as water. And, um, you know, it gives us life. Yayin doesn't do that. Yayin is Yud, Yud, Nun. I'm not going to go into the... the, the um, Kabbalistic implications of the yud yud nun, sod. but it, it, it's sorry, sod. What do you mean? Oh, sod. What the secret? <laughs> the secret of wine. Um, yain has a different effect in 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 in, in certain quantities. Uh, in certain quantities, it's makadish. It, it creates the correct amount of simcha. If you go beyond that. It's uh, it's a destroyer. So um, yeah, you're quite right. But uh, it's an allegory. It's an allegory to the Jewish people in its value, and um, and, and as, as such, it's used in 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 all our memorializations. Yeah, you, know, you you won't find the guy you know uh, under the chuppah, you know, drinking uh, three three uh, three and a half bottles of wine. The idea is to sip the wine, and it's supposed to be a a memorialization and a representation of what your responsibilities are. You're not supposed to take it and drink, you know, three gallons of it and then be, uh, you know, have behave in an antisocial way. The only time you that, that, that is even partially acceptable is on Purim. But as I say, you're quite right with, with Noah. Uh, that's the first thing he did when he came out of the ark, right? The first thing he did was to plant a vineyard and he was he was never called Sadik again. If you notice by Noah, he's called Ish Tzadik Tomim Hoyobedorosov. That's before the uh, he went into the ark. When he came out of the ark, he's described as Ishua Doma. He's described as Farmer Noah. As soon as he started drinking and become a shika, so he's just described as Farmer Noah, right? He's not, not a Tzadik, he's not Tomim, he's not nothing. So you're quite right. In, in the physical world, the actual drinking of wine, you've got to be very careful how much you drink. But this is a, just an allegory. The, the idea of wine is an allegory to, to, to what is expected of us. Okay. I think, I think it must have been before we had coffee. It would have been a much better allegory. Uh, I don't know. You, I got don't know about focus, that. you got focus and energy. You know, well, the, after Larry will tell you, after after you forget coffee, you got Ritalin now. Right? You don't need coffee anymore. You need you got yeah, Ritalin. Right. Right, and uh, and you got you got uh, heroin as well, right? That'll also make you feel, you know, in a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful world as uh, Louis Armstrong. Is it Louis Armstrong sang? What a wonderful yeah. world. Um, yeah. So, but wine is it's an allegorical. It's an allegorical, but it's it's the it's the it's the premium. It's the premium product of a tree. The premium product of a tree can't be produced by any other tree. On the one hand, it can, a, a vine can produce the most um, uh, valuable 
of all the fruits and all the fruit juices. On the other hand, uh, if it's not used properly, all that's left is the branches, which are not not worth anything. And that's a direct analogy to the Jewish people. Okay, that's we'll pick up from there next week. Please, God, call to, to everybody. Everyone have a yeah. great week. And Shavuot and, um, call to, to some Thanks, of you I'll see later on. Some of you I'll see tomorrow. Call to. Bye-bye.